Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World. I'm your host, as always, Kane Sims, and uh, I have an epic conversation lined up for you today with uh, Richard Moore, who's a senior research fellow at Sheffield Hallam University. We're going to be talking about a supreme use case that Richard's been working on, which is to help children move more using conversational AI. And Richard will tell us the background and the details, but essentially there is a bit of an epidemic going on at the moment where kids are just not doing exercise. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid from probably the age of about, I don't know, four till 17, 18, you just couldn't get me off a football pitch. And I spent most of my childhood moving. My wife was exactly the same. Most of her childhood was spent swimming. Seemingly these days, kids don't tend to move quite as much as they once did. And so uh, Richard's conversational AI chatbot is intending to kind of uh, sort that out, essentially. We know that moving more, being healthy, doing exercise is better for everyone. It's better for your brain, better for your body. And so how can conversational AI help that we're about to find out in just one moment. But before that, I want to give a shout out to our presenting sponsor for this episode of UX World, which is Tidio. Now, you might not have heard of Tidio. Uh, it's, it's been around for, a, for quite a while, and it specializes in helping small to medium-sized online businesses improve their customer experience. It's heavily focused uh, or has a huge presence in retail, and uh, essentially it helps you maximize your capacity without having to take on additional hiring costs. It's a platform. It's a live chat platform with conversational AI. It's got domain-specific language model for retail already built in, which means you can ask it questions about things like uh, product recommendations, discounts based on customer behavior. It'll do things like uh, it can personalize the shopping experience and it's answering four out of five questions successfully, which is pretty good. 80% of conversations with Tidio's AI seemingly is successful. Product availability, shipping, order status, returns, all of those kind of use cases that you would expect. And if you want to achieve more with fewer resources, then you can try Tidio today. You can use Tidio.com is the website forward slash VUX. And there's an offer there if you want to test it out for 20% off. So please do visit Tidio.com forward slash VUX if you want to supercharge your online retail journeys. Okay. Thank you very much for Tidio for presenting VUX World. Delighted to have you on board. Uh, without further ado then, boys and girls, let's get into the meat of today's action. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Moore of Sheffield Hallam University to VUX World. Richard, welcome. Hi, Kane. How are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. We could have done this in person. You're just up the road. No, no, just, no, I was just about to say that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lovely day. We could have done outside as well. We could have done that, yeah. <laughs> audio quality would have been like, but uh, we certainly <laughs> won't get rained on, which is um, which is unusual for where yeah, we are. Uh, I'm getting a studio. I don't know if anyone knows. That. I'm getting a studio built right now. In our garage, is getting converted into a proper podcast studio, and so part two of this, you know, when the chatbot reaches the next level, we will definitely do from VUX World Towers. Uh, it's a single story tower, of course. So it's not a very big tower, but it will be a, a very nice studio environment where we can do more in-person podcasting. So there you go. I'll be delighted to work with you ready. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, for, for jumping on, on the podcast. Uh, so I, I, we were at Rework. We were both at the Rework conference. Uh, I didn't get a chance to actually speak to you at Rework because oh, yeah. after your talk, you were kind of just swamped by uh, – every time I looked at you, you were, someone was talking to you, and I didn't want to interrupt, so I thought, well, let's let's uh, try and try and do the podcast. And uh, it was a very interesting talk that you gave. I'll give a little bit of an insight into the background of this use case, and I'd love to learn a little bit about where it came from, first of all. But uh, Well, second of all, but first of all, tell us a little bit about kind of yourself and how you sort of got involved in – wanting to explore conversational AI in the first place? Yes, yeah, so I've been a researcher now for, for over 10 years at Sheffield Hallam. Uh, a lot of my work has involved uh, evaluation of natural programs, uh, most of those involving uh, young people. Um, so projects aimed at trying to get young people more active. Uh, I suppose when we first started, it was mainly around participation. So how can we drive participation and get more young people involved? And it's kind of shifted over the past uh, probably six or seven years towards well-being and looking at physical and mental well-being and how we can prove that through physical activity. Uh, and about five years ago, I was just really interested in kind of moving from evaluation because we've learned so much, got a huge kind of knowledge base from all the projects we've worked on. How could we apply that knowledge into developing an intervention which actually supports young people to get more physically active? And behavior was one of the key reasons behind it because we don't really understand young people that well, and we don't understand the barriers. And then there was a kind of a, a light bulb moment um, when I came across 
graphical chatbots, one in particular, Wobot. And you can see how that communicated with its audience in a kind of reassuring, empathetic manner um, and could potentially deliver support um, through that chatbot for mental well-being. So potentially we thought we could uh, apply this to a chatbot which looks at, at physical activity, um, particularly around the barriers that, that young people face. Nice. And and what are those barriers? What what are the kind of what was the kind of reason for wanting to do this over and over and above? Kind of like it would be nice if young people move more. Like what what why they're not moving more? Is there any data that would suggest that that people, the children are not doing as much exercise today? Like why was that a focus? Yeah, well, we were really lucky. I mean, there has been quite a lot of studies around barriers um, and facilitators for young people. Um, engaging in physical activity but a lot of the interventions haven't been successful so if you look at kind of the Lancet which is the leading health journal the World Health Organization or both um, released reports stating that there's more needs to be done more interventions particularly using digital technologies to provide that support so we're really lucky because we were able to do a, a national study um, so my colleagues led on a study with Sport England um, which allowed us to survey over hundred thousand, sorry, over two hundred thousand young people. So, as part of that, one of the questions was, "What stops you from taking part in physical activity?" So, from there, we did some more research to identify what those barriers are, and then that's kind of led on the journey with Phyllis to look at what types of interventions we can use um, to overcome each of those barriers. So, we've, we've done some work around it. We've identified fifty-six barriers. Um, and then we've used um, existing theoretical frameworks uh, and models, so such as the COMBI and the, uh, the um, Trans Theoretical Domains Framework, uh, to help us to categorise what those barriers are, understand what the sources of behaviour are, and also to then identify uh, potential intervention functions which can be used to overcome those behaviour. And that's what we're doing now in terms of programming the, the chatbot, uh, the interventions that are used to deliver that support. Mm, nice. So I mentioned to you kind of before we went, before we kind of went live that, you know, a lot of chatbots are in conversational AI in general, in terms of they've got a lot of good technology that's there to understand people, a lot of, you know, sophisticated natural language understanding capabilities and things like that. But a lot of them are fairly kind of dumb in a sense of what they're doing is they're taking an input, classifying it, and then just serving a response. And there's not really much of a sort of brain behind a lot of them. You know, it's kind of like, okay, you said that, now I'll give you a response that's this. And if you wanted to try and do something that is kind of, you know, based on something that's got more sort of depth to it, you, you kind of need to rely on, you know, either the science behind the conversation or being able to pick up on a, a situation that a, customer, a user is in sort of thing to be able to guide them properly. But that's not necessarily just based on, the intent that they have so to speak there's a whole lot of other things to kind of go to it is interesting to kind of hear you talk through and we'll get to that kind of shortly which is these frameworks that underpin the chatbot which is you know it's not just something that is recognizing the intent from someone and serving them a response it's actually a full-on sort of like behavior change framework that sits behind it that underpins the conversation which is which is great um so we'll definitely get we'll definitely get onto that um in just a moment but I just want to kind of go back a sec to the, the study that you did found that there was barriers to people kind of to, to, to children exercising or moving more frequently. Why was it that kind of like, what is it about the nature of, of the interface of a conversational assistant that kind of led you down that path? You mentioned Warbot and that's fair enough, but you know, the NHS has got a lot of content on their website and there's lots of other kind of services out there, you know, that lots of, um, I don't know, football clubs and swimming clubs. And you know, there's lots of other things out there, lots of other uh, areas of intervention. What was it specifically about conversational interface that you thought would, would add value to, to this kind of uh, aims that you had? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, when I, when I talked about participation, um, so there's a lot of focus on just providing more different types of activities. So there was a, a kind of big move towards alternative activities, you know, for instance, like skateboarding. Um, and different kind of adventure activities like that to try and engage people. But what we've since found is that there's a lot of psychological reasons which stop young people from taking that first step towards physical activity. So there could be 
lots of different reasons, lots of different activities out there that they, they might enjoy or they'd like to do, but there's a lot of psychological reasons which are preventing that. Um, and that's a real shame. Uh, and there's also lots of issues that are created around social media, for instance, so body image appearance, um, which kind of prevent people from wanting to maybe look sweaty in a physical activity environment, wear the right clothes, lots of peer pressure. Um, but also there's other kind of social factors around it as well. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of need for private enterprise running sports these days, rather than kind of sports running in schools uh, and by the community, less youth clubs, for instance. So you need money to be able to participate in sport. And if you haven't got money, then that's kind of another barrier to participation. But one of the key barriers is confidence. Um, people having the confidence to actually go and do physical activity, particularly in groups. They're worried about fear of failure, um, not making, uh, not being successful within that kind of environment. And then it can breed uh, other psychological challenges like anxiety, uh, depression. So if they're already suffering from those kind of conditions, then physical activity can actually uh, make it worse um, because of the lack of confidence. When we see the research, it should be making us feel better. Uh, and it does once we're engaging it properly. Um, but making that initial step is often quite a difficult one to um, to take. Mm. Uh, and, sorry, Conversation Live is brilliant for it because it allows us to engage with young people um, in a way we've never really been able to, to do before. So, for instance, it's quite difficult for young people to maybe go to uh, children, young people to go to um, a parent or a school teacher or even go and see a doctor and talk about some of the issues that they face. So if they can use a chatbot, which is going to be available 24 seven, so they can maybe access it in the be bedroom at night um, or, or even uh, after school, um, it's potentially non-judgmental. Um, it can provide that reassuring content, which might just allow them to take the step to get the support they need to overcome those barriers. Um, and we think that that might be a good initial step for them uh, rather than having to speak to parents or speak to teachers. And maybe a step that might be further down the line will be to actually interact with those people. But I think initially they need that confidence and support that conversation I can provide to, to take that step. Mm, brilliant. I, I remember coming across a chatbot um, from a few years back, actually, that it was intended to support women that, women that were uh, victims of domestic abuse. And it was specifically in India. And, you know, apparently this might be a generalization, but according to the people that were presenting this, the culture over there is that it's very sort of male dominated and, and can be quite oppressive in cases. And so the, this chatbot was there to support women who, who are victims of domestic abuse. And in exactly the same way as you mentioned there, that people feel comfortable talking to it because it's non-judgmental. That was the exact reason why the chatbot was so successful because they felt very ashamed of speaking to anyone about it anyway. And then also what they realized, you mentioned again, you know, they can use it in the bedroom. What they realized is that the usage of the chatbot, the people who built it, I can't remember who built it now. I should really find out. The, they noticed that it was used more at between uh, two and four o'clock in the morning was like the predominant time it was used. And it's obviously because, you know, the, the abuser, so to speak, is asleep. And it's the only time they feel kind of like they are in some kind of a safe space to be able to have the conversation. So there's definitely something to a conversational interface, you know, uh, that kind of, it doesn't make a noise. It's not like talking to Alexa. You know, it's it's easy and digestible. It's not like trying to read and, and read pages and pages. And you almost maybe, I don't know if you found this with the, the research, this could be complete rubbish, but it, I get the feeling that, providing it does understand you and you've got genuine back and forth, you feel as though you're talking to someone about it, which helps you get stuff off your chest, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think particularly with, um, issues around physical activity. I don't think people make the connection that there could be those psychological challenges or other social challenges actually preventing them. I mean, we all have we all have these barriers, really. But until you actually start to look at it and consider it, you don't realise that there could be lots of different things stopping from being physically active. So I think in the case of that use case you mentioned there, other use cases, um, that there's so many potential ways that we can provide support to people 
um, and just give them that initial reassuring content that might actually drive a conversation with, obviously not in the use case you, you described, but might actually um, drive them to have a conversation with the police or someone else. And we're actually bidding for funding at the moment around um, for an organization called UK Anti-Doping. So they want to encourage athletes to whistleblow um, on drug-related offenses and cheats in sport. So exactly the same way, really. It's how can we give them the information, the courage, the support to then report these instances and feel that they're going to be listened to and um, there's not going to be negative consequences to the athlete as a result of that. And this is a great way of doing it potentially anonymously as well without anyone else really being in the loop. Mm, interesting. So, so you, so you completed this. There's some data to suggest that, that children are not exercising or moving. You did your own kind of research that found barriers. You come across the fact that a conversational interface seems to be uh, the most appropriate type of interface to, to deliver this information through. Um, what, what did you? What was your next step there? Where did, where did you start in, in being able to construct this chatbot? Yeah, we also did some work with. Um teaching again a separate study for the department of health and social care so we we've done some work with them and looked at the barriers as well so there's probably about 30 barriers i think um that they thought that less active particularly those from deprived communities suffering so we kind of had this this initial um uh, evidence base to work from and then the next step was to co-design with young people so we identified 10 young people and we set a criteria for them to be involved so they had to feel that they had something that was preventing them from being physically active. Uh, we had to try and um, engage different genders, uh, different ages, all adolescent age and ethnicities as well. And then we had an uh, initial interview with them. We actually took a robot down from uh, the computing lab. So they did a little, uh, Pepper did a little dance for them just to get them engaged, just to do um, a bit of... Um, uh, ice breaking, I suppose, at the start. And then we did an interview with them. So we had two or three different researchers just having a chat, just finding out what the barriers were, whether they kind of matched um, the criteria we were looking for, but also matched the barriers that we, we'd identified previously. And then we just had a conversation and to see what they thought about chatbots, what their initial perceptions were. And it was really interesting. Again, that was another kind of light bulb moment for me is that they were already expecting it. And this is what is really key for, for us uh, going forward in this, 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 this area is that young people are expecting to be able to use chatbots and they have high expectations of what they can do. Um, and the fact that this wasn't available to them already, they were quite surprised really. Uh, so it shows we're quite behind in terms of what the young people are going to be expecting as they, as they get older. But they were really keen on it. They wanted to um, support the design of the chatbot and they felt this could be a really good tool, uh, again, based on the assumptions that we'd made previously, they kind of agreed with, with all of those. So that kind of set the chain in motion to do the co-design. And the second stage of that was to produce a, a document, which was kind of a co-design um, pamphlet or, or a kind of, it was a PowerPoint presentation basically, and it allowed them to provide lots of information about the chatbot, again, in their own time, um, anonymously as well. Uh, and when we captured information about the types of content that could be delivered through the, the, the chatbot, the persona, so we used a couple of other um, theories around there, like Leary's interpersonal complex to understand the kind of characteristics and traits of the chatbot. We got them to draw an avatar. We got them to come up with names for the chatbot. Um, and we also want to kind of look at the tone of voice, uh, other characteristics around the chatbot. So, you know, could it be based on a celebrity? Uh, did it have a certain tone of voice? What were the types of utterances that they'd use for greetings, um, for fallbacks? Just so it could allow us to kind of uh, build up a bit of a picture of what this chatbot would look like. Uh, and in the end, they all wanted to kind of be peer-related. So um, a peer-based chatbot of around teenage years, so probably um, 13 plus, but maybe erring on the older range, so maybe 15, 16. Um, and they wanted it to be um, engaging and positive, um, but also challenging, actually. So they want to be able to cooperate with the chatbot, but they'd like to be challenged. So if they had 
certain beliefs around physical activity, um, then they want to be told if they're if they're wrong. We've seen that with other research we've done with students as well, which again to me was was quite interesting. I didn't expect that. Um, and again, something for for designers going forward that you know maybe we don't want them to be all nicey nicey. We actually want them to to be challenging when when there's incidents where uh, you, uh, people should be challenged on certain points or beliefs or, or attitudes and maybe having a discussion around those as well to come to a conclusion which again is important when we look at some of the interventions that we're, we're looking to design for all of them so we did quite a lot of co-design and then the final stage was to build the prototype and then test it with with the same young people and also some uh, random young people in the same school to to to, to evaluate it Nice. Yeah, it's interesting the the whole kind of like challenging situation. Like we deal with a lot of businesses who are who are building and launching chatbots, and the only time that the a, a kind of enterprise chatbot would challenge a user is if somehow the user or customer doesn't quite meet certain requirements. Like, mm. can I have a refund, please? Well, actually, you bought this within outside of the thirty day window, so typically you can't. That's the only time it would like challenge is when you don't meet a certain requirement. Yeah. Whereas when you're dealing with things that are not necessarily matter of fact and rule based, it's more about perceptions and opinions. Mm. And it may, it may well be still fact, but you know, it's like saying to someone, for example, my um, my nana, she still to this day believes that sugar is fundamentally good for you. <laughs> and so we did, we went on this. Uh, me and my wife Gemma went on this diet uh, a few years back, and we quit sugar. Got this book, can't remember, Madeline Shaw, I think it is. I quit sugar for life. Fantastic book. Hard to do. We did it for three months. We quit all packaged food, all all refined sugars. And uh, I was talking to my nana about doing this kind of like, you know, we're doing this no sugar stuff. And she was like, oh, you absolutely need sugar. And it's like really good for you and it gives you energy and all that kind of stuff. So it's like having that conversation with someone whose belief is fundamentally different is is kind of challenging at the best of times, yeah. you know. Um, so it's interesting how – and uh, so Ben on, on our team, Ben McCulloch, uh, I don't know if it's released yet. I shouldn't share too much about it. But essentially he's, he's publishing something um, soon, which is around the kind of like uh, – the shape-shifting nature of ChatGPT, mm. which is that it always just wants to please you. <laughs> and so it will just go with the flow all the time. Yeah. And actually, in extended interactions over time, that starts to piss you off a bit because it's like all it wants to do is please you and it will bend over backwards to please you, even if it's lying to you, not lying, but hallucinating and giving you yeah. inaccurate information. So yeah. the, the idea of, of kind of like young people wanting this thing to challenge them is quite a... It's quite a good one because it shows that they they know that they don't have all the answers, you know. Exactly, you, you know, people tend to you know, use and abuse, don't they, with um, with large language models? And I think potentially, if it's if it's too nice, it could be taken advantage of even more, and you don't have that kind of same respect uh, and even trust with it. And like you say, we know it hallucinates, but because it's so positive all the time, it kind of um, affects the level of trust that we have with it. So having that balance is is really important, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. And I, I, like, I like that co-design approach as well. And, and you know, it's because you're, you're obviously not a teenager. And so having all the assumptions that you have or had prior to engaging with the, that group of young people, there is, there is, you're going to waste so much time building on your assumptions you know, so you could have just gone down a path not involving, you know, the, the, the people that you involve, the kids that you involve. And you could have gone down a path, made a load of assumptions, built something, put it in front of them and found out it was, it, it was all been a total waste of time because it just doesn't align with their expectations. I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for kind of designing with the user because, you know, how would you write dialogue for a 14-year-old? For a you know, what kind of language would you choose to use? What kind of tone would you use? It's like, it's questions that you only ever have assumptions for because you're not a 14 year old, you know? So I think the, the co-creation element is something that's uh, even in kind of like common or, or more mature design practices when it comes to conversation design, there's still not a lot of that going on. You know, it's a common in, common in, in mature UX practices, but um, the whole co-design thing is still something that is uh, underutilized in my opinion. Yeah, we're trying to we're trying to combine both really, um, and trying to get that kind of UI and UX and a co-design across it. Because I think it's important. I think it does interconnect. So it's important to get the views of the same population that you're working with. But I think I think you're exactly right. I think that's why 
Um, I'd love to do some research around it, but in terms of you know failures around chatbots um, and successes as well, and to see the ones that have been co-designed, the ones that haven't, and whether that's made a difference in terms of success, I'm, I'm pretty sure it would have. Um, but it'd be nice to to look at that data and um, uh, and understand it from an evidence-based uh, perspective. But yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm, and without this, we wouldn't be able to understand the needs of young people, both from the studies we've done, the national studies we did, with the, the big kind of numbers from um, um, young people, but also the smaller, more personalised work um, on the ground, meeting young people in person, understanding them, trying to understand them. It's it's impossible to do that. Um, but I think um, going forward as well, if we can get something which is engaging, which they do interact with, then based on the interactions we have in future, once they're using the chatbot, we can start to iterate even further and improve that personalization and the persona of the chatbot based on the feedback and the conversations that we're having with young people. So it's, I think initially it's important just to get them engaging with it uh, and wanting to use it and then hopefully you can make further improvements down the line. Mm. And so once you've gone through that initial sort of design phase, you mentioned that you, you created a prototype and then tested that with young people as well. What was your approach to, to building the prototype? Had you ever done anything like that before? Like was there a certain tool that you sort of gravitated towards? Was it you that built it? Like what was through, if you can, the, the kind of creation part? Yeah, so I built it. So I've been working on lots of kind of smaller projects um, when we first, so probably 2018, started playing with different projects and got some small funds. So we started using a tool called Mind Behind, which was great as a, an, an early kind of user of chatbots, just because it's a really kind of straightforward tool to set them up and you can do pretty much what, everything you need um, to create a, a nice kind of chatbot with, um, with AI built in. So we, it gives you the kind of option to use different NLUs. So we use Dialogflow, we could have used Watson or Lewis. Um, so we basically trained the NLU model based on data that we got from the young people um, and um, based it around those barriers. So pretty much the NLU model can understand any of those 56 barriers to physical activity. And this, again, is where the co-design is really important and having uh, good quality data because some of the utterances are, are wild. You know, uh, you would never have guessed that this refers to a particular barrier. Um, but in just being able to look through that data, categorize it, speak to young people, it meant that actually the NLU is quite, quite good because it can understand lots of different types of utterances from young people, which adults would not be able to come up with, you know, on their own. Mm. It'd be interesting to see whether ChatGPT can, if you got the right prompts, whether you could come up with some really good utterances. And I did test that and it, they weren't that great. Um, so again, it's really important that we do engage with with young people around that nuance, around those particular utterances. So we did that. We then um, deployed the model, designed a prototype around it, created a couple of modules um, around confidence. So using uh, self-efficacy theory, um, and one of my colleague designed a module around that. He was an expert, was a psychologist, and then I kind of put together the prototype, uh, and then we tested it with those those young people. So the, the, the model's around 80% accurate with very little testing. Um, so we're quite happy with that. Um, and I'm sure with further testing, we can, we can improve that a lot, a lot more. But initially, um, actually, when we did the testing with young people, I think it was around 95% accurate. Um, and the only ones it didn't pick up were um, ineligible utterances mm. from, from, from young people. So yeah, we're quite happy with that, but there's obviously a lot more work to do um, um, further down the line to kind of capture the range of responses that young people will will provide us when we look at the uh, more detailed intervention design around it. Yeah, well, that that would naturally once it's out there in the wild and part of the optimization on an ongoing basis, you'll you'll be doing things like that. Um, curious then how the two things come together. So you've got the prototype and a, and a language model created. You've got a lot of input from from young people around barriers and things like that, a lot of research support in that. 
how do those two th- things come together? You've alluded to it a few times, combi, uh, like trans theoretical domain framework you've mentioned. You mentioned Lewis interpersonal complex self-efficacy theory. There's a lot of theoretical frameworks that underpin all of this stuff. I wonder whether you can just walk us through what they are, how they work, and, and what the impact is on, on the conversation, so to speak. Maybe we can start with, with we, I don't know, it's up to you. you choose the best place to start. I don't know which one is the best one to start with, to be honest. Yes, I, th- I think the, the main task was categorizing the barriers. So we took those barriers um, from the studies that we mentioned, and then I categorized those with a colleague of mine using the COMBI model. So we looked at what um, categories they fit into. So for instance, uh, the COMBI model relates to uh, capability, opportunity, and motivation, uh, and that leads to behavior. So if we're looking to change any type of behavior, we need to understand that, whether they're in, in, in the case of physical activity, are they capable of being physically active? Um, um, do they have the opportunity to be physically active? And do they have the motivation to be physically active? And then we can go one step further with that, and we can use the uh, trans-theoretical domains framework, which um, allows us to understand the factors which influence behavior. So the combis, the sources of behavior, and um, trans-theoretical domains framework is the factors which influence it. So for instance, uh, psychological capability. So we talked about anxiety, talked about fear of failure. Uh, there could be um, emotions around that, which when people do physical activity, they feel certain emotions. So the TDF would allow us to understand that kind of nuance around uh, the the barriers uh, that young people face and then allow us to look at what things we need to do to be able to change that behavior. And then what we do then is we we still use a COMBI model, um, but the COMBI model also has what they call intervention functions, um, which are different ways that we can... um, design interventions to overcome the barriers that we've identified. Uh, So mentioning capability, opportunity, motivation. So different intervention functions, you know, it could be, for instance, training, um, it could be education. um, And then what we can go again is go a further step and use uh, the behavior change taxonomy, which allows us to then look at those intervention functions and look at particular behavior change tools, which might have even been tested in other areas that we can use to um, be applied within those interventions. So it's quite a complex process, but actually it's easier when you've got the diagram in front of you and I can kind of point things out. But um, I've just found the photograph I took of yours. Yeah. Right? yeah I don't know yeah. if you can see this from where you are, but that's basically it, isn't it? The uh, there. Yeah. Opportunity. Okay capability motivation and all of the behaviors around all the barriers is it around the around the outside is that right so so the inner inner circle is a source of behavior so uh, capability opportunity and motivation the yellow is an addition they've added that uh, to the combi um so that's the tdf so that's kind of mentioned about the emotions and different areas the factors which influence behavior and the red ring is then those intervention functions that we can use to change behavior and the outer ring is the policy that can be used um, or to use to drive that behavior. And in this case, the policy will be service provision, which is what we're offering really. We're providing a service through the chatbot to challenge all of those things. The only thing missing from that is the behavior change taxonomy, which just basically says, well, for this particular behavior, for these factors that are influencing behavior, these tools are the best one to use to um, try and change the behavior. Then, by going through that process, it not only allows us to kind of give us a framework for designing intervention, um, a conversational intervention, because we can adapt it to suit the work we want to do. So, for instance, we've only chosen the behavior change tools which can be delivered conversationally. Um, so, for instance, some um, which require kind of environmental changes, um, we wouldn't be able to do through a chatbot. Um, but the ones involving conversations like social support, education, training can all be delivered within a within a chatbot. And also that gives an, an, an opportunity to evaluate because we've got this framework. We know what the intervention is. So we can then personalize the evaluation based on the individual and based on the intervention that's being delivered. 
so we can develop the effectiveness rather than having a general evaluation which often doesn't reflect uh, the intervention that's that's been provided mm, very good um yeah it's it's uh it's really good so I had a different question that's escaped me now, but what if what, can we step through how that would translate to an actual conversation? So let's say that if I was a young person and I opened the chatbot, how how do you how what's the what's the actual conversation? So like you you need to find a way of figuring out first of all, like does this person even want to have a conversation about? exercise is that the first step or do you jump straight into is there already context set before they have the conversation so they already know that they're going to be talking about this topic like how does the, how does the conversation unfold first of all yeah again i think it depends on on how the um chatbots delivered so one of the areas we've looked at and we did a, a digi health innovate uk program last year which was which is brilliant because it allowed us to do some market testing so we could speak to different organizations to see where this is something they'd be interested in. So we spoke to doctors, people in the NHS, schools. And so if I take the school's kind of use case, for instance, we think that potentially, well, we know there's young people out there who are just not physically active, don't like PE, actually hate PE, don't want to engage with it, which makes it difficult for the PE teacher, difficult for the kids in the in the class, and not good for the individual because it can exacerbate certain issues that they're, they're facing. So what we think is that if a PE teacher can identify this, um, then they haven't got the resource, the capacity um, to provide that support themselves. So potentially they could use the chatbot, give them a chatbot and say, look, this might be able to help you. It might be able to figure out you know, what's kind of preventing or causing these issues for you in PE uh, around physical activity. So we give them the chatbot. And then the first question would be um, just introducing the chatbot um, so the first information would be introducing it. And then the first question would be, what's the main thing that stops you from being physically active? And again, they could input um, anything that relates. And hopefully we've done our job right and we can pick up anything that would relate to one of those 56 barriers. Um, and then from there, we'll give them reassuring messages. Say, yeah, we understand this. There's lots of young people um, suffering from this or, or experiencing this. Um, and this is what we can do to support and then we would deliver an intervention so in the confidence um, um, module we've already already created we had a flow it's probably about five minutes long took them through it allowed them to interact a little bit gave them some um, information allowed them to provide information about things they could do to improve their confidence and then fed that back to them at the end of the conversation but what we're also looking to do is more kind of longitudinal support so provide other modules around goal setting, uh, for instance, uh, track participation as well, uh, and then kind of have more um, interactive conversations uh, further on to understand their experiences and provide support based on where they're at at that particular time. Um, because there's another model called a trans-theoretical um, model, which basically allows us to understand what phase young people are at in their in their physical activity journey so some might be uh, not considering being physically active others might be starting to consider it others might be active but are just experiencing issues that are stopping them from doing more so it's kind of getting that user context information as well to allow us to adapt the intervention to support them mm, nice nice how does the combi play into the conversation like do you ask questions about capabilities and why they might not be motivated and and those kind of things is there anything around that kind of uh around that stuff or is that kind of just related to you know the barrier so the barrier might be i'm not motivated so then you can just all of a sudden come back with okay we already know why you might not be motivated because we've done the research and so here's an intervention for that sort of thing is that kind of how it works or is there specific questions around the combi sort of framework yeah exactly it depends on the depends on the barrier really so um, if it's a particular barrier I might have to ask some more questions to understand what their experience is we might need certain questions to support the intervention um, so it just depends on on what that, that barrier is really and the combi the way it plays at the moment in the model is that when we know what the barrier is because we've done the analysis 
we, that will tell us that that barrier is a psychological barrier or it's a social uh, opportunity barrier or a physical opportunity barrier. Um, and then we can then say, well, this is the type of intervention that the young person would need to overcome that. And it gives us some context as well. So we know, if, you know, if it's psychological, a uh, certain type of support will be required. Uh, if it's social, we might not be able to help them. So if it's, for instance, it's, a, it's money, you know, we can maybe provide some information about potential funding, um, or we can maybe highlight opportunities to be physically active on their own, um, go, going running, for instance, or doing individual activities. Um, but what we're looking to do also is signpost people. So we're not trying to deliver everything through the, the chat, but what we want to do is get them engaging with, with the community or maybe other apps where interventions have already been set up, which are working really well, which are effective. So rather than deliver that ourselves, we might say, well, you know, this app's going to be a much better tool. So for instance, Wobot, if they're mm -hmm. depressed or suffering from anxiety, then that might be a better tool or wiser. For instance, another another mental health chatbot there. So it just depends on the on the intervention, and that's why it's important to to kind of direct them in the right way, either through the chatbot or to other digital or social support that's available. Nice. It'd be nice to even just hand off to Warbot in the <laughs> conversation. No, I'm just going to pass you on to Warbot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That yeah, I like that. I like the um, I like the idea. So so. You did the prototype. You're now kind of what's the next phase? You're trying to take it into a, a product. Is that the next kind of phase? What's the next step? Yeah, so we were actually doing a bit more testing. Uh, so I've, I've, since we did the last test, which was pretty successful, so um, young people reported improved confidence and motivation just from quite short interactions with the chatbot. Um, but we want to do some more testing with users who have not been involved in the co-design. And we've added additional modules as well, which we can so we can test some of the other interventions too. Um, so once we've done that, we're, we're just busy writing up the findings at the moment because in order to get further funding, you need to have this published, um, and and that's kind of what we're focusing on at the moment. And then eventually, what we're doing is applying for further funding to build a lot of these interventions, and we're actually going to be engaging with other experts. So those in physiology, physiology psychology, uh, and looking at different ways of delivering intervention. So looking at VR, gamification as well. So we've got around 10 uh, interventions relating to about 15 barriers that we're looking to develop first. Uh, and then again, we'll, we'll test those and then do some more testing and keep building it, building it that way. So the keys, keys for the funding really at this stage. Yeah. Nice. And maybe this question might be too premature then, uh, given the stage you're at, but how would you think about sort of measuring the impact of this thing? Like it's, it's very noble. It's definitely, you know, a perfect blend of there being a genuine need for it and it being the right kind of technology solution for it seemingly. Um, but it's a very complex subject matter isn't it you're dealing with psychology you're dealing with kind of like confidence motivation you're dealing with people's economic situations so what would kind of a really good yardstick for success look like for this thing let's imagine that it's funded it's now productized it's out there in a while it's being used like how would you kind of measure the success of it what would be the, the yeah the, the yardsticks you would look for yeah you're right it's, it's really complex and, and that's why we're kind of um looking at it from a um, each barrier and each intervention. So uh, for each intervention, there'll be a certain process for the using the, the related theory, but it'll also be evaluated separately as well. So that will kind of allow us to use the evidence base to evaluate it, maybe compare that to other interventions that maybe aren't conversational, but at least give us an idea of the best way to kind of measure success for, for those. So we'll be looking to evaluate it um, independently of each intervention. So we might say have um, five interventions and we'll actually do some research, longitudinal research around those first. And once we're confident with those, then we can start to utilize those and then work on the next set of interventions. So we could could focus on the low hanging fruit. Um, for instance, you know, like we mentioned that the, the money, the social angles, they could be the, the easier ones to kind of measure initially. 
then the psychological ones would require much more in-depth evaluation and um, and involvement from other experts. So that's how we're going to approach it. And I think in the past, a lot of evaluation have been very general um, and they haven't really worked as well because we're dealing with really complex cases here. And I mm -hmm. think the only way to really understand the success of it is to break it down and understand the behaviours and the intervention separately and then try and make sense of that together once we once we have the evidence base mm, nice i think the thing the thing is is, is ha having it based on those kind of behavior change models and over time you'll be able to add capabilities in there that will allow you to more accurately kind of you know assess people's situation you know there may be tools out there that can read into things like i don't know sentiment or if it's if it's in a voice channel you mentioned vr you know the interface for vr is going to be voice um and so maybe you can pick up on things like confidence levels or motivation based on the tone of voice and stuff like that um and and you know this is something that could potentially be everywhere really you can imagine it in, in instagram messages on facebook messenger in snapchat like you can imagine this being deployed in any conversational channel basically having a conversation with it on alexa or anything yeah definitely and, and like mentioned that's just the interventions i mean like you say there's lots of other areas that we can evaluate and engagements the the key isn't it you've got to kind of get that engagement first to be able to then start to measure measure interventions but yeah i think it could be available on lots of different channels and again it depends on um the uh, kind of delivery of the chatbot. So schools might have certain regulations. They might want it to be just housed within a, uh, a school website or within a particular app that they have for the school. Um, you know, the NHS, they might just want it to be through the NHS app ecosystem, for instance. So it just depends on, on that. But I think with this is also lots of other use cases. So we're, we're working on the projects around cancer rehabilitation, which has a physical activity element. As I mentioned in that presentation um, a couple of weeks ago, I think, you know, for business as well, for customer service, um, I think we can offer a more enhanced well-being support. We've, at the moment, we're just kind of focused, a lot of people are focused on just delivering the, the uh, customer experience that's needed or replicating what's already happening now, but just enhancing it. Whereas I think in future, we can go that one step further and and add well-being into the to the equation to provide a service but also look at ways using these different interventions to enhance people's well-being so like we mentioned about money again um you know it could be a bank or it could be another organization where there's there's, there's money people can't afford certain services and there might be other additional support that we can provide to give them some maybe money advice or money support um, look at different ways they could could earn money, um, and that applies to well-being. It applies to uh, health. So I think there's lots of ways that we can really use this technology to enhance the services we offer. Because previously, just it's just not there wasn't resource available to do it. Humans aren't able to offer that level of support. They're too busy doing the day job. But with conversational agents, we can go that step further and really help to improve people's lives, I think, through the everyday services and and um, support that they, they interact with. Mm, that's that's the promise of AI, isn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah. half, half of the world is, is the sort of dystopian view that it's all going to kill us, but <laughs> on the other half, which is like, it really should be doing things that we can't do, you know? we It's impossible for us to do the things that you've just uh, elaborated on with such consistency and at such scale, this could be having 5,000 conversations an hour yeah. and every single one of them will be exactly the same as the last one, you know? Whereas you try having <laughs> any person, I mean, this one conversation, I have a podcast every week, sometimes twice a week. And by the end of the podcast, it is tiring because you're, you're, you're focusing, you're listening, you're really paying attention and everything else disappears, you know? So if you're working in like a contact center or whatever, it's exactly the same thing. You're listening yeah. all the time. You're focusing all the time. You're yeah. empathizing all the time. You're trying to help someone all the time. And to the best of your ability, you've only got so many good productive hours in you on any day. 
Whereas AI doesn't get tired, doesn't have a day off, never phones in sick, doesn't turn up five minutes late. It's just on all the time. And it has capabilities that we don't. So the benefits to me are just, you know, huge. Yeah. And we've just mentioned customers, but actually the people who are doing the jobs, you know, it's a bit of satisfaction because it can't be great for someone when you haven't been able to help that person because you know, you just haven't got the time to, to do it. But if there's something there, a conversation like I, which can say, well, have a look at this, see if it can give you that additional support that you require that can solve that problem, then that will make you feel better, won't it? Give you that little bit more of job satisfaction um, and hopefully create a better experience for everyone when they're, they're engaging because we all know what it's like, you know, in using different services, they don't always go well. And I think um, it's something that's, you know, this has got to be able to lead to a, a better um, better opportunity to do that for everyone. Definitely. I was I, I read a study, um, might have been yesterday or the day before, was it Omida, might have been Omida that produced this study, which is essentially, it was a customer experience study and it was looking at people's kind of, how, how do people feel about customer service and customer experience that they receive today from the businesses that they deal with regularly? And before COVID 2020, uh, people thought that customer experience was kind of okay. You know, it wasn't fantastic, wasn't wasn't terrible. COVID came, obviously it kind of just went sort of like through the floor basically because everyone was freaking out and no one knew what was going on. And it hasn't really recovered. And this study was basically saying that compared to before COVID, even though since COVID, everyone seemingly has been trying to really put a big effort into customer experience as a priority for loads of organizations. So it's a big focal point. It's getting a lot of attention. It's getting a lot of budget. It's getting a lot of resources put into it. But the actual people who need the services and businesses that they engage with think that customer service and, and customer experience has gotten worse in the last four years, which is, yeah, yeah. you know, so any any tools that are going to make our lives easier are absolutely, you know, required. It's not even like a nice to have anymore. It seems it seems as though like this stuff is fundamental and figuring out how we make it work so there is a productivity and a productive tool for both staff and for users is uh, definitely where we kind of need to be focused. And I think that's why I was such a fan of, of your sort of approach. Um, you know, albeit sort of like still early days, I think the steps and the, the methodology and the approach is absolutely ideal. You know, it's basing everything on, on real science, on real kind of theoretical frameworks. And it's finding a way of taking that and layering a conversation on top of it you know, r- rather than kind of like, you know, what most like a lot of chatbots do is they just recognize an intent, deliver an answer, and there's no real substance underneath it. So I, I definitely commend the work that you're doing and uh, yeah, good luck with, with taking it forward. Thanks again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's complex and there's, there's a lot of work to do, but um, hopefully we're on the, on the right path. Definitely, definitely. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, Richard. Absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you all for tuning in, uh, as always. Uh, don't forget about Unpaused. I didn't mention Unpaused at the beginning of the, of the, of the podcast. How uh, stupid of me. Unpaused is coming up in, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks' time now. It's very close. It's the world's first conversation design conference in person at London South Bank University on July 24th and 25th. Get yourself tickets at unpassconf.com. We've got the world's leading conversation designers that are going to be there. They're going to be sharing the tricks of the trade and how you do conversation design effectively. Uh, unpassconf.com. And as always, uh, shout out to our presenting sponsors, Tidio. Uh, you can go to tidio.com forward slash VUX if you want to find out a little bit more about Tidio's live chat and conversational AI platform specifically for small and medium online businesses and there's 20% off if you go to that link right now tidio.com forward slash vux t-i-d-i-o.com forward slash vux thank you again richard it's been an absolute pleasure i hope to see you at the next one and i'm looking forward to doing part two in person in the studio when you've uh, taken it to the next level definitely I'm, i'm well up for that can't wait nice one nice one thank you everyone we'll see you on the next one